the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 311 premium for Thursday, January 20th, 2011. You know, John, it's a really good thing that you do the intro on this one, because as you were saying it, I was sitting there thinking uh, January 20th, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. From Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. And uh, here in Fairfield, Connecticut, I'm uh, John F. Braun. And I think I said it properly, 2011. Sometimes I would agree with that. 20, 20, well, 2011. Well, I think 2011 is 2011 works. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, as long as people understand what we're saying, which I think they do most of the time. So That's right. But that'll change quickly because... <laughs> Wait, why, why would that change? <laughs> no, it won't. Okay. <laughs> Are going to change the show and speak only in Swahili? Or geek. But no, oh, our listeners speak understand geek. geek. Yeah. Yeah. No, no that's our job is that. to help you understand geek. That's yeah. what uh, that's what we're all doing here together. It's a good thing. Uh, Daniel writes. Right. We good to go with Daniel. We're good. To go. I'm, I'm all right. I'm ready for he says on to the fun stuff. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, he says the app address book sync is taking over my MacBook Air. I've just done a nuke and pave on my system because all the troubleshooting I did before did not fix it, and I still can't get it to slow down. It works fine on my iMac 27-inch at home, all linked to the same mobile me account. It doesn't matter how long I leave it for, it just stays there using up my CPU and memory. I've also included a screenshot of the console, and he did. He included screenshots of everything, which is always helpful. Uh, any ideas on where I could go next to fix this problem would be much appreciated, other than throwing the MacBook Air out the window. Well, you know, address book sync is related to mobile me, uh, as you surmised. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, mobile me's not all that great when it comes to resolving syncing problems. When it works, it's fantastic. And uh, and I I love it despite its flaws. But this is definitely one of those flaws. So to solve this, the first step I do would be uh, to go into mobile me system preference pane. So system preferences, mobile me, uh, and then you go to the sync pane and uncheck uh, contact syncing or contacts. Uh, and then let things get a good couple of syncs through. Force a manual sync then, let an automatic sync happen, maybe even let it go a day. Make sure this address book sync thing stops running. Um, if it doesn't well we'll go a different direction uh once that's kind of calmed down let's go ahead and turn contacts back on same place check the box and then immediately go into sync uh which you already are click the advanced button and then click reset sync data and then choose contacts from the list and then you're either going to choose reset on mobile me or reset on computer depending on which data you wish to lose. So if you're resetting on the computer, you're going to lose the computer's data and it's going to be replaced with mobile me's. If you're resetting mobile me's data, you're going to lose mobile me's data and it's going to be reset from that, from your computer. My guess is in your situation, you're going to want to reset on the computer, which is going to slurp down everything from mobile me, refresh, wipe out uh, sync services locally, and then... Uh, uh, and then, you know, uh, hopefully get you through this. My my guess is that address book sync is running because it's got some conflict happening locally 
uh, on your machine and it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's not happy. Um, if turning it off in sync does not slow it down. Uh, if you Apple click uh, Apple, wow. Did I say Apple? I meant yeah. option, but, uh, right. It's option. Click. Yeah. Option. Click on the, uh, mobile me sync icon that sits in your menu bar. Choose reset sync services at the bottom. That, that may also help. Remember, it's not just your address book app and it's data syncing with mobile me in the cloud. Uh, it's the address book app syncing with sync services, which is yet another copy of your data on your Mac. And then that is syncing out with the cloud. So there, there is yet, you know, there's three things at work to get one computer to sync with the cloud, if that makes sense. So, John, I know, I know you have some, some thoughts or perhaps some additional insights here. Yes, I do. So one thing I was curious about, Dave, so I don't see that process in my activity monitor. So okay. I decided, how, how, how could I even find it? And this is a trick. I think it's worth mentioning again here, but this is what I think is considered. So there is a process called address book sync. Right. No spaces, right? Just all, all Correct. together. Yep. Just as is shown in the, uh, yeah, but I was wondering, where is that, Dave? Now, normally, I think with Spotlight, and the, you know, this lends itself to a trick that we talked about before, I believe this is considered a system file. And normally, if you try to find things in Spotlight, you're not going to find that. You have to invoke this special mode when you do a find within the finder, and you've got to specifically say, I want to look for system files. But I did find it. Okay. You know, a little, little guy called Address Book Sync. It's, uh, it's buried... Deep, deep in the system folder, it's in system library frameworks, address book dot framework versions, a resources. And there's a little program called address book sync. Right. And then we want to take a peek at that and get info on it and just see if, if all the permissions and everything look right. I, I suspect that there's nothing wrong with it, though. I, I'm with you that it, it's corrupt data that, that, that is causing this to uh, to invoke itself. Now, you could also try to nuke it in activity monitor, but I don't know if I'd recommend that either. And I don't I don't know if that's going to accomplish much much good no i, I think it but it sounds like right back yeah yeah it sounds like it's just going to bounce back it's going to say no 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 there, there, there's data i really think i got to synchronize um so again look at it and just make sure that all the permissions look correct but i suspect they are and, and it's just a messed up database as we've seen in the past with with mobile me so yep. so you gotta sometimes clear everything out and just start from scratch i, I think that'll do it now john you uh you mentioned the, the there being a way with spotlight and and you, you agreed we've mentioned it before but let let's briefly talk through the steps that it is that that one would need to use to search for system files with spotlight oh, all right well i'm going to do it right now because i'm okay. there all right yep. so i'm so i'm bringing up well i'm bringing up a new tab because i'm using total finder which i think is just totally awesome and I then start using that again yeah it's uh and i think the price actually went down but it's uh you know as you wanted um, something with tabs. I chat with tabs. Yes. This is Finder with tabs. And I, I just find it so, it really helps my workflow, especially when I got to move data between two different uh, folders. It yeah. It just makes it really nice. Is it available so, in the, uh, in the, well, because, uh, I'll let you look while I'm going to describe. No, 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 because I can't, I can't look in the app store because I'm not on 1066 on, on the podcasting oh. machine yet. All right. But, uh, but let's uh, let's let's talk about the App Store a little bit. Go ahead, go ahead and give the instructions about the uh, right. about this. First. So I have a tab here. So what I'm doing is I'm hitting Command or Apple F, and then you get a menu on the left here that says Kind is any. And I think what you want to do 
Well, I think you could do two different ones here. I think you could say, so it says kind as any. Right. No, I don't, I don't like that one. What I'm going to do here is go to the kind menu, and then it's going to have an other okay. choice. And once you're in the other, it's going to bring up a window that shows a, a whole boatload of attributes. Yes. And I think the one you want to look for is called system files. And there's actually a little search box. If you type system, you're going to get system files as, as the attribute you want to look for. Yep. And then it's going to say aren't included. You want to say are included and then move over to the uh, search window to the right of the window. And here I'm going to start typing address book. And it shows up in the in the list. Beautiful. It's there somewhere. Cool. Yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah, that's how to find those. Uh, normally it doesn't show you that stuff because, yeah, you, I'm getting a, a whole bunch of matches here. So it's, it's I think it's a good thing that that's normally not shown. But this is how you would find a system file like that. Yep. Cool. All right. So we'll take the uh, the the other little tangent that I was going to head us down here and we'll do that now. Uh, the Mac App Store. So it's been out for a couple of weeks and we really haven't mentioned it at all uh, on the show here. And and I'm curious. In fact, you and I haven't even talked about it uh, up until now. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it and how you've been using it and what you uh, you know, what you recommend for our well, listeners. If well, anything. we did a little bit, Dave, in um, in Cool Stuff Found in 309. Hmm. I talked about it a little bit. That's true. That's true. Um, the, the thing that I noticed is, and I was corrected too, so I actually purchased Aperture, which is, of course, Apple's, I would say, higher-end photo management software. That's right. And yep. normally in the retail box, I was mistaken. I thought it was $2.99. It's $1.99. But if you get it in the App Store, and I don't think this is a, a temporary special, uh, I got it for $79.99. Right. Which to me, it's just to me, it's a no brainer if you're if you're at all serious about managing your your photographs to get Aperture three. But uh, my thoughts on the App Store, I there are a couple of annoying things about it. Uh, all in all, I think it's a great channel for people to find their apps, and I think it, it almost makes it too easy. And that's one of my gripes. Yeah, is that so you can search for apps. The the gripe that I have is if you're already logged in, it's too easy to accidentally click on the buy button. Oh, sure. That's right. You did. You mentioned that. That's right. Yeah. Now, normally what happens is that if, if it's the first time you've come into it and you haven't already logged in, like to look at your account information, it'll say, oh, give me your account and your password. So that's one gate. But other than that, because there are some other things you can click on, I think it's share link or copy link or share this right. title via email with someone. So you can say, Hey, you know, I could send you an email saying, Hey Dave, check out aperture in the app store for 79 bucks. Uh, and they break some UI rules, which, which bothers some people, but all in all, I think it's a, and it's not too, too smart about knowing all the things, or, or it doesn't f have a good way of showing you all the things that you have installed already. But I think it's a good start. Uh, I think it could use a little more flexibility in the way the, the, the UI handles things and like i mentioned what what it shows you but as as a way for people to sell apps i i, I think it's great i think it's good it's good for apple and i think it's good for application developers yeah i, I and i agree with that assessment i, I think it's yeah it, that's part of why i haven't really brought it up is because it's just well yeah it's great you know and i haven't had any problems with 1066 you know i'm always hesitant on the podcasting machine to do any sort of updates uh, i always run them on my other machines first and give it a couple of weeks Partially because I podcast here, and then the other reason is I run QuickBooks um, here for, uh, actually Lisa does when she does all our accounting, and QuickBooks is, you know, quirky with some OS updates, so I, I don't want to put her out of commission if if I don't have to, so, um, but yeah, I, I, I agree, you know, I, I haven't had it, I haven't had a problem with it telling me 
uh, what's installed. I mean, it, it's been a hundred percent accurate telling me what, you know, what I've installed from the app store and, and, uh, and updates come through just fine. Uh, I, I really like it as a centralized place for updates. I wish it would, I wish it would check more frequently because I ha- kind of have to go in and force it to check to see, Oh, is there an update of this app? Oh yeah. Okay. You know, but if I don't launch the app store, I don't, I don't really know that there's an update for, you know, say, you know, Twitter, right. Which has seen a couple of updates since the app store launched the app no longer tells me that there's an update. I have to launch the app store. So, uh, but once I launch it, yeah, it's, it's always told me I'm surprised to hear that you're having trouble finding, finding apps that it's installed. Oh, no, 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 I'm not. What I'm saying is that it doesn't give you uh, in system profiler. You can go to system profiler and you will get a comprehensive list of all applications that are installed. I don't see any way in the app store. Now, if I select an app, and it's installed. It'll say that instead of a buy button, it'll say installed. Can't you go? And again, I don't have app store in front of me, but uh, can't you go up to purchases? Right. Which is just whatever the button to the right, to the left of updates is, uh, will show you what's been installed or what's been purchased on another machine in that account and then could be installed. Well, it shows you what's installed that you've purchased through the app store. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not being clear. Okay. I would like it to show all apps. So right now you have right. two, uh, you have the, the apps that you buy through. The, so if if you start by buying all your apps through the app store and then everything's great. But right, right. now you, you don't really have, unless again, you go to the system profiler and look at applications. You don't really have a good picture of all the apps. I mean, you can look I, easily. I got, you look in your app folder. I got so, what so you're that, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It Right. It it's It's vision is limited, basically limited to only those apps that you've purchased through the app store. There are some notable exceptions, but it's a little quirky, right? If if you own BB Edit, for example, that that app is properly code signed in the way that the App Store will notice that you have BB Edit installed already. So if right. you navigate to to BB Edit or you Jimbo, I think all the bare bones apps are like this, and many other apps are too. I just happen to notice it with those. If you go there in the App Store, it says installed, even though you did not install it from the App Store. Now, of course, the problem is if there's an update that's pushed through the app store, you will not get that um, because the app store didn't let you, you know, you didn't install it through the app store. You can't review it in the app store, even though the app store says it's installed and it won't show up in that purchase list. Um, but, but yeah, it, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. That part of it, it, it's totally understandable, but from a user perspective, it's confusing. Right. You still with me, John? Pretty much. Okay. No, I'm I'm with you. All right. Let's talk about uh let's talk about flashing lights, John. John, not you, but listener John writes, uh my two point eight gigahertz eight core early two thousand eight Mac Pro. That's a lot of qualifiers to describe a machine, man. Uh my Mac Pro did something strange early this morning. Normally I would be happy to just wait and see what happens, uh, but uh I have less than a month left of Apple Care, so I'd really appreciate any help. Okay, yeah. Uh I heard the fans running at full speed and the power light was flashing. The screen was dark and it didn't respond to the mouse or the keyboard. I held down the power button and it shut down. I pressed the power button after a moment and it started up normally. Everything seems fine at the moment. There was a similar occasion where recently I heard the fans running at full speed early in the morning, but clicking the mouse seemed to wake it up and it was fine. Energy saver is set to sleep after three hours and the display sleep is 15 minutes. I have the following items plugged in, a Seagate USB hard drive, a Drobo S via FireWire 800, an iPhone via USB, 
and Apache Duet via Firewire 400. RAM is a mixture of original plus some from OWC. I upgraded the RAM within a month of getting the Mac Pro in February 2008 and haven't touched it since. In the console logs, it seems it did a time machine backup at 6 a.m., which completed successfully. Then uh, he gave us some other logs. Uh, I assume most of the log is irrelevant, but I'll copy it all anyway. And, and then I'll do you all the favor here of reading every log file item. I just need to get uh, get some tea first. But uh, no, John, you go. Go ahead, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, based on what I know, Dave, a, a flashing power light uh, means one thing. Okay. And, uh, I found the appropriate article here, HT2341, Intel-based Mac power-on self-test, otherwise known as POST, RAM error codes. And it goes into a little bit of detail, but as far as I know, this is the only reference I could find to what a flashing power light means on the Mac Pro. Okay. So... Uh, uh, so I kind of blew past all the all the rest of the information that was provided because I, I don't know I don't I don't know if it's relevant to yep. this problem. Now the problem is is that it's intermittent, and that's the thing that that gets me. So I, I suggested a let me let me bring up what I suggested to uh, to John here. So yeah, the problem is it doesn't happen all the time. Now he indicates that he has a mix of RAM. So one suggestion that I'm going to have, or well, I have a number of suggestions. I'm always, I'm always full of full of it, or full of them. <laughs> uh, we I don't first, disagree. <laughs> first, I would go to System Profiler under Hardware and Memory, and you're going to see a number of columns there. You're going to see Type, Speed, and Status. Just go there and make sure they're all the same, and that the, the, the Type and Speed are all the same. They don't have to be, but I, I think they should be. Because uh, sometimes I think you can put slower memory and the machine can deal with it, but yeah, that's, that's not really nice. So, so make sure the type and speed are all the same. They probably are. If, if, I think he said he dealt with OWC, and that they know what they're doing there. Yep. Make sure the status for the memory is all okay. Now, seeing as how it's intermittent, Dave, I'm going to suggest that he may want to reseat the memory. Yeah. That, if it's intermittent, yeah. it may be a thermal issue. So, so the memory may not... And sometimes it's... You may almost feel like some, depending on, on how the, the memory slot is done, you may almost feel like you're breaking something and, and forcing it, but I found that that's usually not the case. So, Unless you, know, you actually break it, and then that is the case. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, uh, unplug the machine, pull out all the memory, you know, make sure the contacts are nice and clean. I've, I've always used an eraser if, if they, they look like they're tarnished a bit, a pencil eraser. Yeah, uh, and push them back in there and just make sure you push them not with overwhelming force, but enough that you make sure that it's really in that socket and click it in. Yep. Yeah, it, it is weird. I'm trying to think he's got are those are those dims that rock in or do they just push straight in? I think on those they push straight in and and you've got some little tabs on the side. Is that right on the Mac Pro? You don't have a Mac Pro, so I can't um, ask you. But I'm pretty you know, I helped sure. Our, I helped our buddy with uh, I. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a tilt and and clip or if you just push it straight down. Yeah, okay. So if it's it a if it's a tilt and clip, meaning you you're putting the RAM in at an angle to that which it would sit once it's in there. And you can tell because there's always going to be at least one chip in the in the machine before you do any of this. Uh if it's a tilt and clip, you're you're going in at about a 45 degree angle. It's really not difficult to put RAM in. Um and don't be afraid of the process. First, you got to match up uh, if you look on the bottom of the chip, there's going to be uh, little uh, uh, hash marks. Hash marks the wrong term. It's a, it's a little uh, cutout, and the cutout is it's a notch. Thank you uh, for whomever mentioned notch. That well, that was you, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, 
And then there's going to be a little bump inside the, the ram socket, right? And so you're going to match the notch up with the bumps because that's the only way it's going to sit right. And then at a 45 degree angle, you push it pretty much all the way into the slot and you're going to feel it kind of jump into the slot. And then you, you rock it back towards its final resting place. And the, there'll be little tabs on the side, typically uh, one on either side that kind of wrap around and, and lock the, uh, the chip in, right? Similar situation with a drop down Ram chip, uh, except this time you're pushing it straight down into the slot. The tabs don't come from behind the chip. They come from underneath. And so the idea is you push the tabs out. Uh, the, usually they're white tabs, but uh, it could be anything. You push the tabs out again, line up the notch with the with the little bump, push down as hard as you can and uh and you'll feel it lock in. And then those little tabs on the sides will automatically jump up and lock the chip in. So uh, so that that's that's my Dave's quick and dirty installing RAM lesson. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll see if I can find them, but I'm pretty sure the Apple site, because this is a, a you know user upgradable or replaceable component. I think yeah. they have a guide that, that shows some nice uh, pictures that, oh, even uh, better. There, that indicate what you talked about. A couple other things. So one. You could also run Apple hardware tests that has a extended memory test. I'll, I'll link to something that tells you about that. That's going to be on your installed disk that you got. You typically hold down D when you boot off the uh, disk that came with your machine. And then finally, if you have Apple care, you, uh, which I think he indicated he does, you can get tech tool deluxe. And sometimes they mail it to you. Like I just ordered Apple care in a box and I got the uh, physical disk, but they did something that if, if you, I guess, order, it with the machine they may not give it to you packaged but you can go online and i'll give this url as well we'll, we'll put it in the notes where you enter your serial number and if they have on file that you uh, registered apple care then you can download a copy of the latest tech tool deluxe and that also has a ram test so i have another idea for ram tests go Install Applejack, which you should have installed anyway. It's a fantastic command line utility for uh, when your machine doesn't want to boot or you need to do some stuff uh, at the at the command line. And while and it's available for free, Applejack.sourceforge.net. And we'll put a link, of course, in the show notes. Uh, when you install Applejack, you have the option, if you go to a customized install, of installing a command line mem test utility. This is... I've found it to be the best and most reliable memory tester available out there. Uh, I've tried Apple's. I've had bad, bad RAM in a machine before and Apple's uh, the hardware diagnostics didn't find it. You know, nothing found it uh, and it was driving me crazy. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, Applejack Memtest. Let's try that. So you boot to single user mode after you install Applejack. You hold down command S at, at the reboot. And then I think you just type mem test, M E M T E S T. Uh, and it, and it will give you some options, but, uh, but you can run it right there at the command line and it, it's, it can be pretty exhaustive. It, I mean, it, it, for me, it took several hours, uh, on the machine that I did it and it, it'll report when it finds bad Ram. And then of course the trick is you start taking out chips and swapping chips in and out to find <sighs> right. which chip is bad, you know, and obviously if you take a chip out and it runs good all the way through and you put the chip back in and it runs bad, well now you've isolated it. Of course in in John's situation here, he's got sort of a a mishmash of, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't and that's the frustrating thing about hardware problems is they are, you know, that I, I think I've said it before, but when I was doing consulting and there was something where, you know, sometimes when I do it, it works and sometimes it doesn't, uh, you know, that that would always lead me to think, oh, hardware, 
you know, because software is pretty given all the same criteria and, and that in and of itself can be a, an interesting test. But, you know, given all the same criteria, a piece of software will always act the same way. As Did long you as you see the. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the uh, the knee slapper I, uh, I, I posted on Twitter the other day? No. How many how many software engineers does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> Go. None. It's a hardware problem. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, I like that. That's and then finally, one little piece of trivia that I found when I was doing show notes for an earlier episode. You know how we were talking about the light on the uh, airport? Yeah. Express. Yeah. You can turn the light blue, dude. Hey, that's awesome. I never knew this. The way you do it is if you put it in this add wireless clients mode, which is like, oh. which is a way to temporarily add. I've, I've never seen the LED on it turn blue. I activated this feature just to see it blue. So if you want to, <sighs> you know, impress your friends or you're having a party or something, and you want blue LEDs. There is one in the latest time capsule or airport express. I would Enough actually do lights. that if you're going to sell it to somebody. Blue, blue LEDs always make something look more expensive. I don't know why, but I, you know, you see something with a blue LED, it's, whoa, that must have cost you a lot of money, you know? Uh, so you put it in blue LED mode and you bring the dude over and you're like, hey, you know, this is, this is an airport express. A special, special right. edition. You don't even have to say special edition. Just check this thing out. Look, it powers right up. Blue, right? Everything's good. Oh, I'm sorry, extreme. It's only on the yeah, extreme. extreme that's right. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. Uh, We've exhausted the lights here. Next, another John. Another John. Yep. John, again, listener John, but not the same listener John, writes. Uh, I finally need your help with my 17 inch MacBook Pro from 2008, just out of Apple Care. It works perfectly, but will sometimes lock up when unattended. I left it this morning for five minutes and came back to find the screensaver frozen in place, totally unresponsive. And it's always the same symptom. When I toggle power, it will start and the little gear spins for about 40 seconds and then stops and the boot will not proceed. When I do it again, it starts normally after the 40-second gear spinning. I've disconnected all peripherals when rebooting makes no difference. Not knowing AppleCare was gone, I called Apple, and the nice lady had me run Disk Utility from the Snow Leopard install disk, which said the hard drive was corrupted. I reinstalled Snow Leopard to repair it, but the same thing happened, so I deduced the 500 gig I had installed myself was flaky. I just replaced it with a new Seagate 500 gig Momentus XT using SuperDuper to clone the old drive. I ran the Snow Leopard repair four or five times. Each time it said something like, find 719,339 files should be 719,340 files. Well, it's still doing the same thing with the new hard drive, so I don't know where to go next. Uh, I will try out the flat rate repair service if I can't sort something out on my own. So the first thing I want to say, and I, this didn't hit me when I read your question initially, John. Um, Apple Care ends, but... I've heard, and I've never experienced this personally, I've never had to test it, but I've heard of people who call AppleCare within 30 days of their AppleCare expiring, and Apple honors it as though it were under AppleCare. It's all, it's, from what I understand, it's almost like AppleCare actually goes an extra month, but they don't advertise it that way, and then that way when you call and you say, dude, I'm like two days out of warranty, is there something I can do? They're like, yeah, of course. So... Uh, you may be okay, John, if you call uh, AppleCare. That said, this is a weird one, John, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go based on the information we have here, and then we can talk about some follow up information that we got from listener John about this too. But you know, it it, it definitely sound. I mean, I, I have to believe Disk Utility is correct that it's reporting severe file system corruption, um, which is odd because when you clone with SuperDuper, you can't. 
you, you're not cloning the file system. You're just copying the files. So the file system itself on the new drive should be clean and pristine. Uh, but, you know, the test would be reformat the drive, reinstall Snow Leopard from scratch, uh, and then use migration assistant instead of super duper to clone the stuff over. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know, you know, and even with Apple care or the flat rate service with a third party drive in there, um, you know, they, they may not, they may not be able to troubleshoot it all the way down. You, you might be better off putting your original hard drive that came with it in there and, uh, and sending it in, assuming the problem still exists with that drive. But, uh, and, and, and we did hear back from John and he said that he did a, a clean install and the, the system uh, is still reporting these errors. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a head scratcher. So we've got some troubleshooting for others of you who might see similar symptoms, albeit due to a different problem. But I don't know that we've I certainly haven't narrowed this one down, but maybe, John, you have. I have. Good. Well, this is uh, where are you going? I'm OK. I was just leaning down to, to scratch <laughs> off something on the show notes here. It's all right. I'm still around. <laughs> I'm um, sitting in a chair. Listen, my headphones are wired, right? I can't go more than about three feet from the microphone without causing a lot of like microphonics and cable right. noise. So, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I'm all right. All right. Here's my guess based on. So I don't think it's a problem with the reliability of the drives because we have multiple drives here. Sure. I'm going to tell you what my guess is. I'm going to guess that perhaps... So this machine, uh, John has been in this machine. I'm going to guess that it either got zapped, specifically something in the vicinity of the disk controller, or it may not be plugged in. Th- this connector is kind of a weird connector. If, if, if it's similar to what I've seen when I go in is that it's a teeny little square that goes into a teeny little socket. And I think it's easy for it not to be totally put in there. I mean, they do have a, a piece of tape over it and all that. So I'm going to suspect again, either something got zapped, uh, not that you do that on purpose or that that connector, that tiny little connector that connects the drive to the motherboard is, is not firmly in there and you're getting these these weird errors uh now you can also look in the console uh and and see if you're getting any sort of sata or other bus or controller or other other errors but that's that's going to be my guess since it's happening with multiple drives yeah 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 that's actually that makes sense yeah it's got to be hardware i mean it it can't it's the only thing so i mean you're definitely heading down the right path and i think uh, if I'm remembering correctly, in the email that uh, the follow up I got this morning, the machine is in with with Apple at the moment. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully they'll be able to figure that out. Moving on to James, John. Why not? OK, James writes, I have my mail set up with an IMAP account using mobile me on one of the recent podcasts. I heard you reassure someone that mail received would be preserved on the Mac. If you selected the right choice under advanced in the accounts preferences. And that's true. And in fact, that choice is set by default. Uh, I'm confused about mail. The way I like to handle my mail is to open the mail program on my Mac and read through the unread messages, deleting them in most cases so that I can keep everything on one page. In the past, it was my understanding that even though I had deleted these emails, they were still available on the computer. Several months ago, I began looking for some old emails that I had deleted that contained a contract I wanted to review. I found I was missing seven months of emails. 
When I called AppleCare, I was told that the preferences in the mail program do not apply to the MobileMe IMAP server. I was told that MobileMe deletes mail in the trash after 30 days. So it's my impression that if you delete a mail message from the inbox, it disappears after 30 days. According to the AppleCare person, it could not be recovered. Maybe I've got this all wrong. Maybe if you do not delete from the inbox, it stays on the Mac, but I think deleted items go to the trash and are eliminated by MobileMe after 30 days. Since this has happened, I set up a rule that all received mail from people in my address book would have a copy saved in a folder on my Mac. Have I got this all wrong? Are all messages saved on MobileMe even if, when they're deleted? If you elect to keep all messages for offline viewing, does that apply to messages you have deleted? When I spotlight search my Mac for the months that I did not have the rule in place, I have no mail saved. Okay, so this is actually a really good question because in the old days with pop mail, meaning uh, connecting to the server, downloading everything, essentially deleting it off the server uh, at that point and storing it all on your Mac, whatever settings you set in your mail client were the only ones that applied. So if you said never empty from the trash, it was never going to empty from the trash. If you said empty after a week, it would empty after a week. Well, IMAP servers are a little bit different, as James has uh, unfortunately found out here. MobileMe or uh, yeah, MobileMe's IMAP server is set to remove anything older than 30 days from the trash. Gmail is the same way. Uh, it's also that way with its spam folder. If something is in its spam folder, so if Gmail detects something as spam, puts it in the spam folder and you don't go look at it 30 days later, that message is gone. So you do need to peruse your spam folder. I, I, I have it on my calendar to do mine every two weeks just so that I'm not caught. Uh, well, cause we don't want to get caught. That's how we roll here. So, uh, you know, you, you can set these rules are still there in mail where you can say remove from the trash after 30 days or whatever. And mail will do that. But the server also has the right to touch it. You know, it remember, even if you're only connecting to the server from one computer, it is possible to have many clients connect. You could have, in fact, you could have Outlook and Mail and Thunderbird all connecting from the same computer to the same uh, mail server, and they would all be able to see all the mail. So that that's how that part of it works. Um, you know, and I'll I'll stop here. And there's some other comments I want to make, but in in no cases would I ever recommend using the trash can as a filing cabinet. Um, and, and, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for this. And this is one of them, you know, that the trash can is, is built to be a kind of midway point between living and dying. Right. You know, so, uh, so you are running a risk. If you use any sort of trash can, the finders, trash can, mails, trash can, iPhotos, trash can, whatever you want to, you, you know, it's a trash can. It's for stuff that you intend to delete and don't care. It, the nice part is you can get stuff out of it. If you put something in, you say, Ooh, I want that back. You can get it back. Um, but, but it's not meant to be a filing cabinet. So, um, now mobile me or mail with the settings we discussed keeps a copy of all messages on your Mac, as long as those messages are also on the server. But once they are deleted from the server, your Mac's going to see that they're deleted, either that you deleted them from your Mac or deleted them from your iPhone or whatever. Uh, and then that message is going to go from, you know, your inbox to the trash. And then when it goes from the trash, it goes away and mail purges its copy of it. Uh, your idea of having a rule where you're making a copy of all your messages. That's cool. 
And and depending on how you manage your mail, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, for some of us, it might mean having duplicates of every single message. uh, But but for you, you know, that makes sense. So. So, yeah, I think you understand what uh, I think you've got it. You, You nailed it. Uh, it's just, uh, unfortunate that you lost seven months of mail to, to get there. But John, you've got some thoughts on this. Well, I do. So I'm looking on my machine here, Dave, within, hold on. We're holding. All right. All right hold on. Uh, users. All right. So home folder. All right. So home folder, library, mail, if you're using mail app. And I looked in here, Dave. Yeah. And it would seem to me, now we've discussed this before, and I haven't verified this, but it looks to me that if you do have it set up where you are saving your mail locally, yep. I see explicit trash mailboxes within the folder for each of my mail accounts. Now, could you use maybe Time Machine and go back in time and see an older... I don't know if Time Machine is smart enough or dumb enough... To save old trashes, because uh, as you said, Dave, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the purpose of trash, I think, is pretty clear in that either mail or something else or the OS gets rid of it after a while. Um, so I, I don't know if you can go back in time and look and, and the trash will reflect the state of the trash at, at the point where the time machine backup was performed. It, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't. It yeah, that's reasonable. I was just going to say it sounds reasonable unless time machine is specifically ignoring the trash because frankly, it's the trash. Right. But but yeah, I don't I, I think the trash is is covered by time machine. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try it, actually. Okay. If, if, and, uh, if you can babble about something for, for a little bit here, I'm going to go back. on okay. my MacBook. Uh, yeah, not on sure. the uh, not because actually I don't do mail on the Mini right now. I just do my mail. Okay. I don't have mail in multiple places. Uh, you know, with IMAP, it really isn't a bad thing to have mail in multiple. Well, places. I still have one Pop account, in which oh, case that that would be kind a of a mess. Thing. Yeah. I know. I I, I get it again. I'm, you, you, know. you know what you can do for that <laughs> Pop account? No. Here here's the thing. If you're in a situation like John, right, and and you have some account that's Pop only. And for whatever reason, you know, so there's two options. One, if your provider for the pop account would let you, you could have it auto forward all your mail from the pop account to some other uh, account, like a Gmail account or something that, you know, one of your IMAP accounts. Uh, If you can't do that, Gmail actually will go and fetch pop mail and populate your Gmail inbox with your pop mail. Uh, it, it's uh, it's actually fairly straightforward to set up. You just go into Gmail settings and it, it out it goes. Now, there's a little delay because it's not fetching it every minute. I think it's every 10 minutes or something that it goes and gets it. But uh, but certainly that could work for you. So that's that's my thought. Did I babble long enough, John, or do I need to uh, do I need to move on? That's still uh, okay. now what mail time machine helper wants to use your info in your wow. Okay, we'll allow that. All right. Um, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this opportunity to answer a question that uh, it surprises me, but we still get this question a lot. And, uh, and I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff because in addition to being a Mac geek, I'm an audio geek. And, and, and uh, we'll use Andrew's question as the, the kickoff to this, but there are many of you, uh, especially premium subscribers who have asked this. Uh, I'm a longtime listener and premium subscriber. Love your show. It's like having two mates over every week for a chat. Uh, I'm looking to get into podcasting in 2011. I like the sound of your microphones and wonder what they are. As I recall, you have a desk mic as well as a headset for road trips. Uh, I'm looking to spend about a hundred bucks on a mic and your advice would be appreciated. 
Okay. So there is, um, if you go to any, the, the, the show notes for any of our shows, we actually detail all the hardware that we use at the bottom uh, of the, uh, of the show notes. And, and then there's a link to a show where I described our setup and it's been a number of years uh, that shows in the sing in the double digits actually. But, um, but the setup hasn't changed a whole lot since then. Uh, in the end, it, John and I both use uh, Heil PR40 microphones. Now, these are dynamic microphones. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a second. And, and they're, they're uh, XLR cables, which are the kind of round microphone cables, meaning they don't plug directly into our Macs. We plug them into mixing boards or preamps, as you might call them. And then from there, get them into our Macs via a variety of different ways. And you can read all about that. You know, you can use a USB interface. You can use a Firewire interface or you can simply use the sound input on uh, on your Mac. Now, these mics, I think they run about two hundred and fifty bucks. Um, plus, you've got to have a mixer and some sort of interface to get them into your Mac. It's it's not the cheapest way to go uh, for our setups. It works very, very well. And uh, and we were happy to spend the money and, and do it. That said, there are a couple of microphones for for someone who's looking to do a pretty straight ahead podcast and doesn't uh, need to go and really just wants to go, you know, microphone to computer as as simply as possible. Uh, There are a couple of mics that that I would recommend. One is the Rode Podcaster. I really, really like this one. Again, it's not cheap. You're in the two to three hundred dollar range. It is a USB microphone. It's a dynamic mic. It's big. It's heavy. It's got a good size element and has a sound very similar to this Heil. It's a warm sound um, and 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 you get it and you get a good clean signal from it. It's also got sound out, meaning you plug your headphones not into your Mac, but you plug your headphones into the mic and you get to hear your you get to hear whatever sound you want to hear from your Mac. So if you have like us music and I, I want to hear John, you know, and all that stuff that comes out back through the microphones output into my headphones. But I also hear my signal in the headphones, which when you're podcasting with headphones on is really important. Uh, otherwise, you wind up shouting because you want to hear yourself. We're all used to hearing ourselves when we talk. And uh, and you may not realize it, but when you talk on a landline telephone, it actually echoes your voice back to you so that uh, so that you're not in this weird funk of not hearing yourself. But uh, then there's the the there's a bunch of mics out there, especially in the hundred dollar range. But they're all condenser mics. And. The difference there, there's there's quite a few differences, but the fundamental difference between a dynamic mic and a, and a and a did I say compressor mic? It's a condenser mic. Difference between a condenser and dynamic is that condenser requires power to run, and dynamic uses the power of the sound signal to to create the uh, the signal that it needs to send down the line. And what that means is, in a general sense, condenser mics pick up way more of the room sounds and all of that. Than dynamic mics do. And that's why radio broadcasters for years have used dynamic mics. You're not usually in a room that sounds very good uh, and you don't want to sound all bouncy and stuff because frankly, we're sending our signals to you through your speakers into your bouncy rooms, your cars, your houses, your whatever. And you don't want to hear our bounciness plus your bounciness, you know, and, and have this kind of echoey sound. So we want a really tight sound that we want to send. And that's why we use dynamic mics. That said, there is one condenser mic that I tested out recently that I really, really like. And it's only one hundred and fifty bucks. And it's the Blue Yeti. 
Blue Microphones is the name of the company, and the microphone is the Yeti, Y-E-T-I. Uh, it's got many, it's got three different elements in it. You can set it for directional, omnidirectional, and it's a USB mic, just like the Rode Podcaster. It's got its own sound out, and you can monitor things. It It's not perfect, but when I, I used it, I think last last year when, when we had a power outage and I had to podcast from the house, uh, I used it and it sounds really good. And it's because of the way these elements are built that it, it has a lot of those dynamic mic qualities. If you put it in that mode, even though it's a condenser mic, it still uh, gets that really tight, close sound. So, so that's, that's my, uh, that's my ramble on microphones. And so hopefully uh, enough of you appreciate that. And I didn't bore the rest of you. And uh, hopefully you got something out of it. Maybe you learned something, even if it's not, uh, not something you'd ever do. And so now my good friend, John has tested the power uh, of time machine and bored me. I fell asleep. Okay, good. Now, didn't they also come up with a Yeti plus recently? I thought I I I heard people mumbling about that. I I know that I know the Yeti. I I think I saw it was either on sale or maybe at Macworld Expo. It's going to be on sale for one twenty nine, which is a really great price. I, I, I like it. All right, Davis, as far as I can tell, so I'm looking here now. I'm trying to remember when I when I switched to IMAP. Okay. But I think I've always had it where I save stuff on my machine here. But so on my MacBook, I went into mail. Yep. Activated time machine, which, of course, uh, you know, there's a special mail specific interface, which is kind of cool into itself. Clicked on trash. And then I went back in time. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't do an echo on that. Yeah, but anyway, you warned me and, on this stuff. And, you know, I, can, I can help you out. <laughs> And Dave, amazingly enough, when I go back in time on Time Machine, the dates on the stuff in my trash seem to go back in time as well. Awesome. So, um, so yeah, so so it's it's doing what it should. It's saving because trash is really, I guess, just another mailbox, right? Except it's called trash, and it Correct. gets emptied on a regular basis if you if you choose to do. Because I think that's a setting somewhere as well. You could choose to never empty and empty your mail trash locally. And it'll have trash back until the beginning of time. No, 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 no. You missed it. That's what oh, it James's problem is. Right. No, if even if you don't tell oh, it automatically. Mail, OK, right. If some other client now, you you know, let's say you have because this is this is an important point to drive home. If you have uh, two mail clients connecting to your IMAP server, right, and you set one of them to only empty uh, to never empty the trash can. Right. And let's assume for the moment that that you're using an IMAP server that never empties the trash on its own. So think, you know, it's a it's a non-intelligent IMAP server, if you will. Right. And, but then you set up mail on your iPhone and you don't go change the defaults. Well, now it's going to start emptying your trash after a month because your iPhone is set to do it. And that change will propagate to any client that connects. So. So, yeah, you, you've got to be you've got to be aware of what clients and what the server is doing with regards to your trash. Okay. Cause I see right here in, in one of one of my accounts, actually, no, it's uh, that's not an IMAP account. Trash permanently erase deleted messages when, and it gives time periods and one of them is never right. Right. And that's, that's whether or not mail is going to start permanently erasing those. But, if something else starts permanently erasing them on the server, mail will will echo that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. It's good that Time Machine does it. So maybe James is saved. Uh, if he was running he Time Machine, be. he might be. Yeah. Wow. Yep. 
Cool. All right. Well, we got time for probably a couple, three more. Pick. Uh, we know we'll we'll know we'll we know we'll do Steven. So let's save that for a little bit. Pick uh, pick two in there, John. Pick pick the next one. Mm. You know, let's do Dorian. I think that's that's okay. and easy. Good. I like that. All right. Dorian wrote, uh, this is a plea for help, a long and mysterious saga. And I have tried everything I know with no joy. I have a Mac pro running snow leopard 10.6.5 at the time the email came in uh, with 12 gigs of Ram, two internal two terabyte hard drives on one of which is my time machine backup drive connected by ethernet to a Mac mini snow leopard server. About a month ago, it started having not always repeatable problems. Different programs would freeze and have to be force quit. Some would not relaunch after the force quit, so I would have to restart the Mac. The restart would hang. Nothing would remain on the screen but my background image. The first time this happened, I waited 20 minutes or so just to see what would happen. Finally, I would have to hold the power button down to, in order to turn off the computer. This happened several times. One reboot went to disk utility and repaired permission, and I checked the hard drive. The hard drive reported needing repairs. I booted from Snow Leopard, installed disk, and ran disk utility from there, repaired the disk, and that repair reported as successful. There does not seem to be any particular program or combination of programs that causes the Mac to get this wonky. Uh, a more knowledgeable friend ran Disk Warrior on my Mac, and that reported no problems. After uh, uh, At the moment, after repair permissions, I can shut down and restart but after the computer has been on for a few hours, we're back to no shutdown or restart. I still have the frequent inability to shut down. Please help as I'm starting to feel like I am back on my old PC. Oh, do you want to take this one, John, or you want to, uh, should I take it? I'm just going to toss out a, a quick thing that I've noticed, Dave. Okay. I, I always, this is, you know, I, I, I don't know some, that we're going to have the magic answer on this, but we, we can certainly talk through, talk through some of the trouble, troubleshooting. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think we have places to look where you can potentially find what's uh, what the what, what the machine thinks it's doing or why it's getting upset. Right. So of course not shutting down. Yeah, that 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 that's bad. Now one place to look, Dave, and I've done this because you know the the console is something that I, I usually have it open, um, running in the background because whenever the system acts up, more often than not, whoever is causing a problem, if you display all the messages you're going to see an indication as to what went wrong. And, and some of it kind of freaks me out because uh, the, the, you know, debugging and all that. I mean, I see, you know, messages about release point anyways, to the point when you're shutting down your machine, you're going to see messages from a process called <gasps> shutdown. <clears throat> so this is a, something that you can search for. So once you indicate that you want to shut the machine down, you're going to see a message in the console with the word shutdown in it. And for example, I'm looking here. So, it, it starts, the, the process starts, it says, shut down, reboot by John Braun. So it tells a user that asked it. Then I get a message, shut down time, and it shows this big, huge number, which I guess is timer ticks. Then it starts showing all the services that are, some of them not being too happy, saying, oh, I lost the connection to this server, and this session is dead, and killing this, and killing, you know, actually, I see a lot of death and destruction in here. I see killing, died, destroyed. I mean, it, 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 the carnage is, is terrible. <laughs> Because everybody's getting, I mean, some things, you know, deal with it elegantly and some don't. So that's where I would start. I would look in the console. Now, hopefully, you know, I mean, if you force shut down the machine, then you may lose some of the stuff that was buffered because this is just a a file. 
and look and see where, if anywhere, it's getting stuck or you're getting a message which indicates somebody is, is not happy and is blocking the shutdown process. And that, that's really the one thing that I got to offer in this case. Otherwise, I, I don't know where else you can even get information. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Ah, uh, yes. I, I think we've talked about this before. Now, so of course you you may not once you order shutdown, you're not going to see this window. But Dave, I believe if you start in verbose mode, yep. I think when you shut down, so verbose mode. I think what is it? Command, Command V. Command V. That's right. Yeah. When you start in verbose mode, you go. you don't see. Uh, you know, normally when you start your Mac, you see the Apple logo and then it spins a little bit and then it goes blue. Well, up until the point it goes blue, uh, when you're in verbose mode, you see just tons and tons of, of console logs scrolling across your screen. And this can be really helpful for troubleshooting on the way up. The cool thing is it's also there on the way down. So if you start up in verbose mode, as you were saying, John, yeah, when you shut down, instead of it going to the screen where it just sort of spins the widget, you see all the console messages scroll across until the machine says, all right, ready to die. And then it, you know, clicks off. So, yeah, that and that would that would be a good. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how else to do it. You could SSH in and look at the console, but your SSH session is going to get killed off pretty early in the shutdown process. Uh, you know, so, yeah. I don't know that I have anything else on this one, John. Yep. Yeah, no, well, let me, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it bothers me that it's not repeatable. I mean, whenever I hear that, it almost to me hints at a, a thermal issue. I, I don't know why it would have to do with shutdown. And permissions repair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't think it would. I don't think it would. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think the two things we recommended, either the console or the verbose mode is, is going to give you something beyond what you're getting now, which is nothing. Which is zilch. That's right. <laughs> which is holding down the power button and right. potentially uh, causing causing problems. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's go to Stephen. Hey, John and Dave. This is Stephen from sunny Tampa, Florida. Hey, want to run two quick questions past you. Uh, first off, setup. I'm using a, a new Mac Mini 2010 with 8 gigs. It's a 2.4 gigahertz, just like uh, I believe uh, John's using currently. Exactly. Hey, I have a question about Blu-rays. Um, obviously, I'm newer to the whole uh, Blu-ray, Blu-ray world, but um wanted to burn my Blu-ray movies or back them up, excuse me, onto my uh, Mac Mini, and I've been using the MCE uh, Blu-ray drive. I think it's like a you know, a LG, an overpriced LG Blu-ray drive, and then I'm using PathTube as software to rip the Blu-rays. You know, everything's been going really well, and when I rip them, they're playing on my TV, they look good. First question is just quality. When I'm ripping them, I'm using H.264, and it's saving as an MOV file. Uh, with that first question, Am I getting similar quality as Blu-ray quality? I'm ripping it, um, doing you know high quality with PabTube. I believe it's like 30 frames per second, 1920 by 1080, and uh, <clears throat> it seems to look really good. I'm just you know curious to see your thoughts. Uh, do you lose quality as a H.264 file, or is there a better um, you know way to burn it to? preserve i guess picture quality and then secondly just uh with the file these files i'm getting they're about you know between 
12 to 18 gigabytes uh, per movie. Uh, is there another uh, file or um, file container I should be using that would shrink that file and still preserve the quality? So, you know, I will listen and see if you guys can provide me some help on this. Look forward to hearing it. Have a great day. Don't get caught. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, you uh, you don't get caught either ripping those Blu-rays. Um, so this is a yeah, this is an interesting thing. So the Mac can't play Blu-ray movies, but it can rip them and then you can play them on your TV through your Apple TV or, or whatever you want or or even on your Mac. Right. Once they're once they're ripped down, um, it uh, it works fine. But Apple will not or has not yet put a Blu-ray drive inside the Mac. Uh, yeah. PavTube, I think, is one of the utilities that will rip Blu-rays on the Mac. I think make MKV is another one, if I'm not mistaken. And there's there's one more. And then Handbrake now uh, with version 0.9.5 will take uh, a ripped Blu-ray and then convert it down to a, a H.264 file and of varying quality. So. Uh, to answer your question about quality, it, it's it's hard to say um, whether you're losing quality. I mean, you are converting. I believe you're con- that PavTube actually converts the movie to uh, an, an H.264 QuickTime file. And, and so depending on how you have that set or how it's set, I've never used that one. Uh, it may or may not be a lower quality than what was originally on the, the, you know, on the movie. So, um, so it really, it depends, but it, from the sizes that you're talking about, Steven, it doesn't sound like you're losing much quality. Uh, you know, Blu-ray, I think will hold up to 30 gigs. Is that right, John, on a disc? And I think most movies fall into about the range that you're talking about there, Steven, you know, that 15 to 20 gigabyte range with 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 all the video data and sound and and all of that stuff so yeah i'm i'm gonna take a stab here so number one as far as i know h.264 which is a codec which both encodes and decodes so a little background is that you're with any video on a dvd or or a blu-ray you're not it doesn't store each image as a full resolution image that would be insane because then it requires so much horsepower and space to display each one of those so what happens is that i think what you're really getting is that what's in the file is the deltas between the two to to try to oversimplify what's happening here and codecs i think in a sense do this so h264 is the one that they use now dave based on what i've done with programs such as ffmpeg there are certain parameters that you can set when you're using a certain codec so i don't think the codec in and of itself makes a difference but the the parameters that you choose when you encode the video certainly will so, so correct yeah exactly so again so for example and i think the three parameters that you use at least with ffmpeg 10 which is a utility that i've i've used in the past you have the resolution and right. the smaller the resolution the smaller the file right and the lower the quality of course you have the bit rate and i don't know if h2 i, I would imagine h264 supports that or the encoder would so if you have a lower bit rate you may get lower quality as well because there's just less data. And then there's the frames per second. And, and I think those, uh, and you know, video experts, please let me know. But based on what I've done, I, I think that's pretty close to what you have to deal with when you're, when you're dealing with video. So, so again, it's not the codec, but it's the parameters that are selected. And I'm sure that's in the, maybe the program 
just reproduces whatever it sees on, on the source media, in which case you're, you're not going to be losing anything. Right. And that's technically 1920 right. by 1080. I mean, anything beyond that's 1080p right there. I mean, anything beyond 720p vertical resolution, I think, is is considered HD, right? Right. But I think and I think Blu-ray is 1080p. I think every Blu-ray has to be 1080p, but I might be wrong about that. Okay. Well, well, like my player, for example, my T. Yeah, it does it. But my my TV is I not that I can tell the difference. Right. Right. And it's smart enough to. uh, Yeah. Well, with a certain 40 inch screen, you can't really I don't think you can tell the difference between uh, 720p and 1080 on a larger screen. Yeah. You may you may start noticing it, but but they're both beyond standard def. Right. So, right. So I think he's, uh, yeah, I think the, as Steve said, the whole licensing issue is a bag of hurt, I think, as he said. So it's obviously the technology's there, but you need the player and the, the reader. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. But, but, uh, but you know, a cheap, you can buy a cheap USB reader for whatever, you know, 50, somewhere between 50 and a hundred bucks and, uh, <sighs> and off you go. When choosing your software, I remember reading something, and I don't think the PavTube one is is it, but I know there was some software that required a Blu-ray writer in order to rip a Blu-ray DVD. But I that, but I you know just make sure you're not uh, you're not driving yourself crazy with that. But um, but yeah yeah you can you can do it, and I think you're doing you're doing fine there, Stephen. I I took a little look at PavTube. When uh, when you were talking there, John, and it does have various presets. So you can say, look, I want to rip this down to, you know, the size for my iPod touch. And so it'll, you know, crunch it down. Now, if you tried to view that one on your TV, you definitely notice some quality differences. But uh, if all you're going to do is view it on your iPod touch, then the smaller file size is much, uh, much better because you're not taking up all that room. You're not it's not taking all that time to to transfer it over and, and all that. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're choosing, if you're choosing the mode that you say, even at 30 frames per second, uh, you know, with 1080, 1080p, I think you're going to be fine. I think you're going to be fine. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's cool stuff. Yeah, I just, uh, I just watched one last, last night that I think you did too. What's that? A team. Oh, I love that movie. I mean, I, maybe the, maybe the plot doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's just once it starts, it's just. I mean, it takes it was, great advantage, both, both the sound and the video. I mean, it's just eye candy and ear candy. It was I mean, the fun. Whole it was, I thought the movie was well done. My wife liked it, too. Yeah, I thought that was great. All right, so we are at Macworld Expo next week, John. I wanted to say uh, it looks like there will be video shot of our live Mac Geek Gab that we do on uh, whatever, uh, Saturday at 5 Pacific. And, uh, and we will have that video to provide to all of you when, uh, when we're back from the show. So, uh, so you, you'll be able to uh, not only hear that podcast, but see it, too, which is pretty darn cool. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it's good stuff. So we'll have some fun with that. Um, trying to think of what else we got going on. If you haven't, if you're going to Macworld and you haven't yet asked us for Cirque to Mac tickets, send me an email directly. I may not look at our uh, Mac Geek Gab email in time, and I don't want you to miss out. So send me an email direct to uh, Dave at MacObserver.com, or you can email John. We both we both have the ability of getting you tickets, so uh, so hunt us down somehow. Well, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, we want to keep out the riffraff, but I think, you know, uh, I mean, nobody if you're a premium, here is riffraff. Well, certainly right. not. I mean, you're, you know, yeah, if yeah. you're a premium subscriber, then you're certainly not riffraff. That's right. Well, nor the, nor the other folks, I think, yeah. for the most part, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's good <laughs> stuff. Um, all right. So let's see. What else do we have to talk about here? 
Do we need to do the contact information, John? Did we decided? Do we make a, an executive decision about that in these uh, these premium shows? Um, feedback. No, premium at macgeekgab.com. No, 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 Dave. Well, you're right. It is premium at MacGeekGap.com. Yeah. And actually, we prefer that. We prefer that if you are listening to this, that you do not use feedback at MacGeekGap.com. You could if you want to. 206-666-GEEK. 4335. That's right. iTunes comments. Always appreciated. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter next week. I'm uh, Dave Hamilton. He's John F. Braun. The show is Mac Geek Gab. Mac Observer is Mac Observer. And Pilot Pete, wherever the heck he is, uh, is still on Twitter. He's been busy. Uh, we miss you, Pete. Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast provides the conversion to AAC Cashfly. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Have a great one, sh- folks. We'll... Uh, We'll catch you next time. Come out and say hi if you're uh, if you're at Macworld Expo. And thanks so much for staying subscribed and subscribing and supporting the show and everything. And just for being you. That's it. <laughs>